Welcome to the Agile Gorilla podcast. The Agile Gorilla is a collective group of experienced M&A and post-merger integration professionals located in Europe, the UK, the US, and in Asia. We know each other professionally and personally, in fact, worked on many deals together. Uh, for more information on the individuals that you're hearing from, please go to our website. So, this is going to be our recap of 2023. Maybe even finish off with a look forward to 2024. Ooh. Controversial. Making forecasts like that. How about as a bit of a teaser, just so you can see what's coming? Let's go around and in 30 seconds uh, or less, what are the two or three things you're going to take us through? What are your headlines of, of this? Ben, what are the two or three things that are going to make your, you're going to tell us about in a minute? So my my headlines that I'm going to tell us about is, um, is almost the level of expectation from the end of 2022 and the failure for that expectation to be realized mm-hmm. in 2023. Um, so that's, that, that's, that's exciting for me. I think then, then I think there are some specific things around fossil fuels that I think are worth uh, talking about. And then the third thing that I'd want to talk about probably is um, the re the, the reemergence of a more active uh, regulator uh, in the marketplace that's starting to have a, a bearing on on the sort of deals that are taking place. Yeah. So those would be my things that I would focus on. Interesting. Abby, what have you got lined up for us? I So thematically, the things that jump out as critical, at least in 2023, in driving M&A types and volumes are, one, higher interest rates. I know it's not sexy, but you know, higher interest rates and more difficult financing really changed what gets done because the more expensive and more financing uh, you know rises it slowed things down the second as ben said is the ftc and eu challenges to mergers microvision activision microsoft activision illumina had to divest grail the third is geopolitical instability and it has two facets one is it has triggered investment in away from china as part of the ten- rising tensions with China. And the second is weirdly, it has uh, spurred oil and gas M&A, even though the world broadly is moving towards energy transition. This year, you had the largest uh, oil and gas M&A activity that you've seen in a, a long time. And I think the consequences of those three factors and how they play out. And then I have one wild card that I'd like to throw out, which is not an M&A transaction, but I think it will color where I think a lot of M&A will happen later, which is uh, I'd like to talk about open AI and their firing and rehiring of Sam Altman and what that means for the importance of culture and talent in companies going forward. Ooh, that is an interesting one. Yep. And Paul, what do you got for us? I well, I think we've got enough uh, for three hours of conversation with the topics which have been mentioned. <laughs> One thing which, which um, building on what Ben was saying earlier, uh, there's always this tendency of you know this past year was not that good, but just to wait, things are going to pick up. And so you know now talking people are talking about optimism for for, for next year. Um, 
I find if, if you relate this to business, when, when a business is declining, there's always this thought that there's a hockey stick somewhere. Um, and why would, why would there be a hockey stick? You know, if things are not good, or oh, they would be better automatically. Uh, and so there's a sort of self-built uh, or self-perpetuating uh, optimism uh, where you always think that, you know, it's not been good, but oh, just you wait, it'll be better. In the Optimism same way, bias. You know, yeah, businesses, you know, say, well, they're going to, you know, next year we'll do much better. So we can we can borrow money or whatever. No, there's no reason why it should be. Yeah. Uh, how long can instability last? Mm. Fantastic. <laughs> um, for me, what did I had? I had something around. It wouldn't be a recap of 2023 without Chat GPT. Um, regulation for me and the deals you guys mentioned uh come up top and yeah the impact on private equity and interest rates um that was interesting yeah, so that's really interesting yeah ben yeah so look i think i mean i i think it's always interesting to look at um forecasts that knowledgeable people make prior to the year starting and just see you know people who are much more in their sort of markets than i am get their sense of what happened and, and you know th- there was an over and i listened to a number of these at the, at the end of 22 about 23 and there was an overriding impression as you say that interest rates would top out in 2023 um that we'd start to see a more benign marketplace from that perspective uh, and obviously that that really hasn't happened uh inflation certainly in a european context has stayed pretty stubbornly high um uh, and 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 i think you know to your market in the states, Abby, I'd be interested in your perspective on on the perception of of relative poverty compared with what the reality of 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 the growth is that you've taken place. So I think it's a psychological thing going on there as well, uh, which is people feeling fundamentally poorer and therefore consuming less and spending less money, um, uh, which would tend to drive the economy. When in fact the the numbers would suggest something different. I think the second thing was, um, and it's a little bit to 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 your point. David, around the sort of this wall of cash from private equity. I think the last number I saw was that something like $1.7 trillion worth of dry powder out there. Um, and, you know, in some ways, you know, it's very interesting that because it, you get the expectation was that that was going to be, uh, you know, invested heavily in, in 2023. Clearly it hasn't happened. We're just a year further down the track and they've got a year less to invest. And that might create, create crazy asset pricing going forward as they need to find a way to do that i think in one of our recent conversations also it was interesting talking to to someone from the sector around you know the concern that he had not for the fundraising that's taking place in the last two or three years but in the next two or three years when that competition with other asset classes starts to become really clear and you know your seven eight percent return compares quite poorly with you know a five or six percent return in a in a in a different risk class entirely in the bond market for example so i thought that that's that you know i don't think that problem's going away but i think this wall of cash uh is going to present a significant problem for for a private equity and it might start to stimulate the marketplace in some sort of weird way um just on that uh, one i think yeah abby so you, you look like you're going to say something do you want to jump in first no uh what i was going to i was going to build on what ben was saying i think the fact that they've the private equity universe and venture capital has raised so much money over the last few years and then this rising interest rate environment has created a situation where the old financial engineering 
game of using leverage to get returns and not really doing much operationally used to work no longer works. And I think yeah. this is going to require, and I think Ben, you're alluding to this as well, it's going to require private equity to go back to focusing on how they're going to do expansion and operational improvements in the portfolio companies they buy, rather than just sort of levering up at a cheap interest rate, waiting, and then just relisting in the marketplace or selling. That's not going to work anymore from a returns perspective. And I think that they're trying to figure out um, how they can recapture this sort of uh, ethos of expanding and operationally improving assets rather than just owning. Mm, yeah. Um, for me, for the year, um, there's the point we don't have the full numbers for the year yet. We've still got a you know a week or so left and it'll be interesting to see what Q4 looks like. But up till Q3, the numbers for the first nine months of the year, um, investing was 30% down year on year in the first nine months yeah. for private yeah. equity. And it's driven by the high interest rates. So you're saying actually you have to go back at least 10, 11 years before you get to deal making from private equity level to this this kind of level. It's a long time and it does make quite a big difference because private equity has been so active in terms of driving deals. Um, so that has been a big change right. for me. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think and the other one, Abby, you mentioned it too. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of set you up for it, but I'd love to get your sense of the whole fossil fuel, um, clean energy market mayhem that we've been going through where, where organizations have really set their store strategically, I think in the last year or so as to where they sit on that divide and how they're going to pursue uh, their, their opportunities and their strategy going forward. I, I think that's been fascinating because it's clear there've been a whole bunch of very important key strategic decisions that have been made in some of these larger businesses in terms of what they're going to drive forward. And they've set their course for that. What's your sense of that? Well, you know, the one thing that really surprised me is, you know, we had an episode earlier where we talked about sort of how the older fossil fuel companies were transitioning to focus on clean energy. But I think 2023 was a year stepping back from that. And I think it was a little bit driven by geopolitical instability, both China and Russia and Ukraine, as well as now in the Middle East. And I think one of the consequences of that is that the least aggressive transitioners, if you will, the ones who stuck by their fossil fuel roots have decided to double down. Exxon yeah. bought a $60 billion acquisition of Pioneer Natural Resources, and Chevron bought Hess at $53 billion. These are all not designed to benefit from any future transition. Rather, they're more designed to benefit from, I guess, an expectation of continued geopolitical instability over the next few years. Uh, and both of them have stronger asset bases, primarily in the U.S., the targets, uh, mostly in the Permian, and except in, the, for Hess's case, they have something in Guyana. But I think that that, it, this is sort of, and, and you see an echo of that in the recent uh, uh, COP28 uh, messaging, where, you know, all the participants who are really the evangelists for climate change activism really had a hard time getting together and coming to one common conclusion. I, I think this is almost a pause in the long trajectory uh, of transition just based on those two things. It doesn't seem like the momentum really sort of stuck it out in 2023 that I would have expected. Although there was one thing. So just the one thing that uh, happened this year was that the European Union agreed the implementation of the carbon border adjustment mechanism from 2027. And that is going to, 
certainly for the eu and it might be another decade before others follow although the uk have said they will follow in tandem in 2027 with, with the eu that does mean that all of these free carbon credits you know we're talking billions and billions of free um credits that are given to big producers in the steel industry cement industry chemical industry are actually now they're going to have to pay and so there's some really big changes you're talking about cement going up from a cost of 50 dollars a ton to 250 dollars mm. a ton so you will start to see, although I agree 100% with you, Abby, that actually we've seen a, a bit of aggression and things kind of stabilizing almost this year. We've committed ourselves to something uh, in three years' right. time. And I do think that's going to be quite interesting in terms of deal-making because it does change when you're doing your due diligence. You really have to think about sustainability now before you could kind of maybe do it yeah. on the side. It fundamentally impacts the, the future finances of these businesses. Right. Yeah, I think I just agree. the other thing to add to that, um is uh, I'll, I'll before before we jump in is i think the other thing that that strikes me and this is sort of slightly outside the MA world is that the the presence of climate and and esg agenda has really penetrated the sort of the public knowledge if you like in a way in 2023 that it wasn't there before i don't think i think we've suddenly got politicians um who are very conscious of of this as being a critical thing for their platform going forward. Either way, you know whether whether they're in the denial place or whether they're ad strong advocates for that behaviour. You, you're seeing, you know, um, in the UK, the, the Conservative government rowing back from from some of its pledges has really had a very negative impact on the way that they're being perceived. Now they weren't in a great place to start with, but I think that's been interesting. You know, equally in in Germany, I suppose, um, you know, the rowback from uh, some of the measures that they've tried to impose around boilers and, uh, you know, has had a sort of significant impact. So, you know, it's suddenly become part of the language of politics and of consumers in the world and something that they're evaluating their suppliers and their politicians on. Where should we go next? I, I'm fascinated by this regulatory thing. I think we've we've talked we've all referenced to the fact that we think there's a there's more of a, a you know as more intervention taking place there's more more um, uh, active intervention that's taking place in that space. What's driving that? Do you think, Abby? Why don't you start? Well, I think one, and this is certainly not the only one, is I think that there's some evolution in the theoretical underpinnings of what drives or what ought to be regulated. It used to be. You know, the traditional economic uh, antitrust criteria used to be, does this potentially hurt consumers with higher prices? And I think that, you know, certainly in the U.S., the FTC's thinking led uh, by uh, Chairwoman Khan is that's not the only criteria under which antitrust is bad for people. And one, you know, she has articulated in things she's published, sort of this view that Sometimes ultra large tech companies can squash innovation by smaller companies. And that squashed innovation might not necessarily result in higher prices in any traditional way, but um, nonetheless, it's detrimental to sort of cons broader consumer welfare. And I think that some of this evolution, and my suspicion is that the EU has long since held some of these views that just sort of the traditional, what I'd call, uh, University of Chicago sort of thinking about markets is probably not the only way. And there's a much more expansive view on how large. And I think, you know, Ben, I think a lot of it seems to be focused around two sectors. If I can, if, if I can yeah. oversimplify, one is large tech, Microsoft, yeah. Google, 
Amazon are all being sued both, I think on both sides of the Atlantic um, uh, for, for some of their activities. Uh, and, and the second is in the biopharma space. The large pharmaceutical companies are really being taken to trial for pricing of drugs that are astronomical right now. And especially, you know, in some of the cancer and, and cell therapy spaces. And so my sense is that I think people are, or governments are looking to reduce the influence of some of these highly influential companies. And there has been a concentration, right? The, 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 most of the returns in the S&P 500 this past year have basically been in what they call the Magnificent Seven stocks, yeah. right? It's sort of the Netflix and the Teslas and Microsoft, Google, Amazon. NVIDIA. NVIDIA. And I think that that is an alarm bell for regulators. And I think that they're deciding that they're going to take action rather than wait for these companies to get even more and more powerful. And then it's I find it interesting because it's almost you've got some deals that might go ahead. Oh, yeah, we really got put on hold because of access to you know digital games. You know, you're talking about online games. Right. Is that really, you know, critical for industry. And yet uh, at the same time, you know, we're questioning if the UK and the US are going to lo lose ownership of their steel production capabilities. I mean, if Nippon Steel yeah. follow through and buy US steel, US steel, they're the only blast furnace producers of any size in the US. Um, without blast furnaces, how do you produce the high quality steel needed for armaments? You can't. So these really strategic industries, if you go back 100 years, might suddenly be, yeah, that's fine, go ahead and do the deal. And yeah, actually, it's the online stuff that we start regulating, which is just weird. Yeah, that me. is ironic that steel, which used to be sort of the traditional big industry, is now, yeah. I, I was surprised how small that transaction is. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's trivial in technology terms. I, w I probably don't know what an average $15 billion technology mm -hmm. stock right now, whereas yeah. US Steel, which used to be sort of Andrew Carnegie's pride and joy, is now uh, being sold for that price. Mm -hmm. Have you got a spare 15 billion? Might be a good long-term <laughs> investment. Right, could be. But it is, uh, uh, I, I do think, I, and I guess when just thinking about forecasting, I would say that it would be hard to see a meaningful reversal of this trend towards greater regulatory involvement in antitrust over the next five years, partly because I think regulatory trends seem to have a lot of momentum. And secondly, these companies have only gotten more and more powerful. Yeah. And I think uh, it's not that they're weakening in some meaningful respect. I, Paul, I will, Paul, I'm going to put something in front of Paul. I'd love your opinion on this. Um, I, I think there's something going on here about a more muscular European Union going on as well, uh, with with the threat from the the extreme right, if you like, as being something that's you know starting to be manifest in in Italy and in Germany and in Sweden and in you know in the Netherlands. You can see, um, you know, uh, uh, and by very close margin in, in Poland, you're seeing a a political landscape that is really fundamentally changed, and this sort of very gentle, you know, technocratic centre right center-left type coalition that's taken that's been in place in Europe for so long I think is being actively threatened by that and it feels to me that one of the ways that they're trying to exert their muscle which they did very successfully um in the Brexit conversation but they also did they did it pretty successfully in the Ukraine debate too to present this very solid uh cohesive perspective on what's happening is potentially in this area as well Paul what do you think 
I think it, if you drive it down to the 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 root cause of that sort of evolution, I think it's also to do with with uh, people's perception and their sensitivity in Europe, as opposed to may, maybe in in the states, um, where it's not just you know the, the the numbers that count, but there's a question of ethics and um, la morale in French, basically. Uh, of of um, you know social responsibility, uh, e e e ecology impact of companies and so on that mean that uh, people don't trust or don't believe anymore in a sort of totally free economy where things will sort themselves out, and that the state has a sort of uh, a legitimate role to to be the policeman in what used to be something which was um, just sort of self regulating. Uh, where the numbers would would automatically lead things to an optimal uh, outcome, <clears throat> and that optimal outcome is is not is maybe optimal for, for for a company or an industry, but not for society at large. And I think that people in <clears throat> certainly in in, in in continental Europe, uh, I still include the UK in, in Europe, but uh, I think there's more of that thinking going on. And, and that justifies, in many ways, a stronger uh, involvement of of, uh, of the state. Now, if you push that to the extreme, then of course, you know, it, it goes far beyond regulating business and so on, and and beginning to really sort of tighten the screw on on society and on freedoms and stuff like that. So, yeah, uh, that both, both I think in in terms of the sort of general direction, uh, those both things are linked. Interesting. I think, Abby, we should move on to your subject around AI and what's going to happen in that world and Sam's move and and move back. I mean, God, whoever the headhunter was, you must have made a lot of money in a very short time on that situation. Yeah. Tell, tell, yeah. Um, tell us what you think there. What's going on there? Well, let me, I think that there are two strands um, that are worth connecting here. One, you know, as as David, you talked about right at the front and Ben, you talked about, I think the world is shifting a little bit towards a theme where financial engineering matters less than it used to, partly because of high interest rates and so forth. And you can envision a state, if you had to make a low stakes bet, that being good at M&A integration and executing growth and operational improvements matters again. And I think the, the examples I'd bring are, for example, this last year, Exxon bought Pioneer. Exxon is very well known for sort of its integration, and they're very professional in doing it. Broadcom, a topic of one of our previous uh, uh, podcasts, actually bought VMware. And Amazon bought One Medical, which is a way of getting into sort of retail health in the United States. One of the themes that you sort of see here is companies that pride themselves on being good at integrating and on being good at executing sort of operational improvements are coming back and being more bold. Maybe because the PE people have stepped back, maybe for a variety of reasons. But this idea that culture and operations and what sort of the, the, the team matters is taken to its optimal extreme, where when the OpenAI board a few months ago, fired Sam Altman. The consequences of it revealed in, a, in the most starkest way, the following sort of idea that in technology, most technology companies are very portable. You know, it turns out that 700 employees signed a letter and I think that's 98% of the, of the employee base of OpenAI, uh, a letter to the board threatening to quit if Sam Altman wasn't brought back. 
And what it revealed is basically most of these companies that are now worth in the hundreds of billions of dollars are basically a bunch of people that if they get upset over something, they can walk out and actually take that value with them across the street and go sit in a different computer terminal and not even a computer terminal, take their own laptops and sit. And, and I think the consequence of that is that sort of as more and more of the world's assets become intangible uh, and human compared, you know, most specifically to sort of U.S. steel, where most of the assets were concrete and steel and, and foundries, uh, as more of the world's assets become uh, intangible, I think it really changes how M&A gets looked at. Because I think anybody doing a technology deal going forward now is going to be reminded that the employees can sign another letter threatening to quit unless they get A, B, and C as part of the conditions of the deal. And I think Finally. it changes... Uh -huh. Finally, finally, finally. <laughs> so I'd be curious to get to the, the three of your views on A. Is that true? Is the open AI situation a outlier that probably doesn't get repeated elsewhere? Or is it the harbinger of the future? Is certainly in most businesses, even the steel business now is becoming more and more intangible assets and intellectual property and chemical processes. And so I don't, I struggle to see any industry, even in oil, old oil and gas, but aside from that, any industry that wouldn't be equivalently affected if somebody came in and just started breaking glass everywhere. And so, go so ahead. I'm not sure because this has always been the situation as in people buy these companies and very people-based organizations and have just assumed actually we've bought your employee contracts and they act as though they bought the employees and they never have done, and they've kind of taken that for granted. And yet, it's been the people who've been on the integration, the implementation, implementation side, who've had to deal with. Okay, now I've got to actually. It's not just you're now part of this company. I've got to win the hearts and minds. I've got to somehow convince them to put discretionary effort into this project. Work harder, work longer hours, make changes, change their usual routine to deliver the value. And it is all about hearts and minds and vision and taking people with you. Um, I don't know. I think that the challenges the education and the the process and the beliefs of the people who are doing deals i don't think that's going to change i th i think they're going to carry on doing the deals despite the risk what do you think paul ben well, on a smaller scale and not these mega deals but lots of companies that are sort of mid-sized and become a bit stale um and suddenly realize you know we need more innovation and they're going to buy this little bubbly business that's you know totally different culture uh much more informal than most of these, you know, established companies and so on. Um, and they buy the company and the guys who are in this little bubbly business and are in, you know, tennis shoes, feet on the table or whatever, and their dog comes to work and so on, uh, don't want to work for these grey-haired, dull guys in the company who've bought them, and they can float away. So I think on a, on a, on a you know, much more, uh, you know, less less um, extraordinary scale than some of these mega mergers, uh, but so you can still lose a lot of value. Uh, particularly, I think it's particularly the case in these companies where they think they're buying um, an ability for innovation, the sort of the whole mindset and the um, and the skills. They can flow. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and Paul, I think that's, you know, that's been the case for a while, right? So probably since the beginning of the noughties, we've had, uh, you know, 
technology type businesses that have been bought where they've basically largely been emptied out because people said, I'm not, I'm not going to come work for you guys. Um, but I think I think what Abby's pointing to is this, this leadership thing where there's almost a sort of democratic revolt that's taking place saying, without him, we will not work, right? So it's become a sort of reverse union situation for a bunch of very high, highly paid individuals. And I think that is fascinating because not only is it happening um, in a sector that people, most people will find utterly impenetrable, right? Um, but it's also happening in an incredibly high profile place. And you've got to think that your average investor is saying, whoa, maybe I do need to take, you know, the remuneration committee's recommendation a bit more seriously and not just send my proxy across to whatever they're planning to do from a reward and, and benefits perspective. And, and actually retention might be really critical going forward. So, you know, it's I, I, these things don't break, uh, you know, uh, in, in one moment. I think they break um, through a, a series of small events. And this happens to be quite a significant one, I think, probably in that process. Now, sorry, go ahead, David. I, 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 I'm just going to contradict myself because, I, Abby, I really agree with you that, in, if anything, this is perhaps a signal to other organisations where a tech team isn't happy with what's happening in terms of M&A and will think, actually, now I know we've got the power and we'll copy it. So we could see that happen. This could be sort of the, you know, I guess, was it the French Revolution that triggered the others or whatever? Mm, the first be. spark. But I think, I think for acquirers, especially acquires, you know, even in the mid-sized companies that are acquiring a, a bespoke technology play. I, and I think, Paul, you brought it up. I think historically, they haven't spent much time thinking about, well, what happens if all these developers leave either immediately in one fell swoop, like was threatened at OpenAI, or slowly, what does that do to the value of what I bought? And I think that one of the things I got, I, I have to believe, is that going forward, more so. And I think you're right, David. It's always been the case that at least they paid lip service to the importance of retaining talent. Uh, I think that they didn't appreciate, which Ben brought up, that the talent can self-organize and probably demand things that they didn't expect, that they aren't cheap. And I think that's one of the things that this is certainly in a hot industry like AI is true. Now, whether you could replicate that in other sectors is unclear. Um, but I think it is something that um, I, I think that is certainly in the West Coast of the United States, this event will force acquirers and investors to think slightly differently in 2024, if I had to guess. Um, how long that lasts, how persistent it is, whether, uh, you know, wh whether it has any long-term consequences obviously remains to be seen. Shall we talk about, we, in the few minutes that we've got left, shall we talk about 2024 and what's going to happen? Let's all get the crystal ball out and see where we where we all are. I'm going to start with you, David. What, what's, what's in your mind that's going to happen in 2024? I think increasingly we're going to see an acceleration in terms of the deal process through uh, AI. The fact that you don't need to rely on your lawyers to take, you know, three days to draft your share purchase agreement and you can get it in 30 minutes, a decent working draft and go from there. Um, and it is being, you know, Alan Overy are, are launching their tool, uh, Contract Matrix. I think that, that AI could see an acceleration in deal-making um, processes. Wow, I love that. Abe? Uh, I'm going to build on that. Um, I do think actually... 
one area which Amazon actually just launched a product for is actually a AI focused on helping employees and HR processes in terms of understanding policies, onboarding, offboarding, maintaining, and it's a whole, uh, and it's a subscription service and they're basically helping people onboard, uh, organize teams, answer questions that they have that, and I think that the HR function that sort of is the glue for a lot of the talent management is, is gonna transition. Um, and I wonder what cultural consequences that'll have, because I, I do think that some of these infrastructural teams really sort of keep the organization together and also prevent senior management from shooting from the hip, right? They, they are the guardrails that prevents idiotic things from happening. I don't know that if, that the AI is going to be as, uh, as uh, vigorous in defending common sense uh, as, mm. as, as the current teams are. And I'm curious to see what effect that has on sort of the culture of companies. Interesting. Paul, what do you think is going to happen to 2024? Yeah, still bringing them. Uh, in, in terms of mid-sized deals, again, I think so many things have been held back by all the uncertainty over the last two years and so on. I suspect that um, there'll be a tendency just to, to, to leap onto things in, in 2024 and probably make some bad deals. Uh, but people have been sitting on money and uh, or trying to sell um, or acquire organizations and so on. And it's been in semi-paralysis. Uh, so I expect people just instinctively to, to, to leap ahead on anything that seems reasonably good. And I expect some of them to be actually quite bad, but just done in precipitation. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you, Paul. I think actually next year is going to be a big year for M&A. I think the combination of interest rates coming down quite rapidly, uh, global recession, recession receding a little. Uh, you know, we've done. You have to put take your hat off to the central banks around the world. They've done a really good job of managing the last year or so. Uh, so I think global recession receding, um, and I think this wall of cash that we've talked about, uh, which is trying to desperately trying to find a home, um, is is going to create uh, an interesting marketplace for for M and A. And Paul, you're sure I'm sure you're right that many many of them will be terrible deals, uh, but we'll see where we go on that. I think the only the only other side of this, obviously, we have a very significant political year next year uh around the world and i suppose no 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 more so than in the states um and what that will do who knows thanks very much for listening we love hearing from you if you've got any ideas comments or critiques please just let us know via twitter or uh, linkedin thanks also to sarika for providing the music see you soon